Well, welcome, you guys. Uh, good to have you here this weekend. Welcome, everybody watching online also. Thanks for joining us and making sure that uh, you prioritize them being together with your church family. I'm just grateful you guys do that. And uh, it's good to hang out with you and be with you also. Uh, we're announcing uh, this April 18th date. That's a big date. That's the groundbreaking for the new facility uh, that we announced we're going to go ahead and start building. Uh, and so want you to come out to that, uh, come out with to that. It's ceremonial, but we want you to bring a shovel. I told you last week we're going to uh, dig the basement, but it's just a retention pond. But uh, if you guys uh, come out to that and uh, bring the kids if you want, but be a part of it. Those things are fun and they're memorable and uh, it's a time to celebrate. God's been incredibly faithful uh, to provide the resources for this facility, maybe especially through the COVID season. And so I want you to, to be a part of that and celebrate that together. And then next weekend, of course, is Easter and uh, want you to be here and I uh, want you to make your way uh, in if you're able to. Uh, we've tried our best to make lots and lots of seats. So we're having uh, eight services, uh, two at the Montrose location and two at Gent Road on Saturday, and then two and two again on Sunday. And so would love for you to be a part of one of those and invite a friend to be a part of one of those. And uh, I think it'll be a great time celebrating Jesus' resurrection. So check that out. So lots of fun stuff, lots of exciting stuff happening here at Grace all the time, and, uh, and grateful that you're a part of it. Uh, this weekend, uh, what we want to do is we're going to finish up a series that we've been in these last few weeks called Wasting Your Life to Save the World. And uh, we've been talking about Jesus, right? So as a, if you are a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, so the word Christian means to be like Christ or a little Christ, a reflection of Christ, then you want to look at Jesus, right? And you want to look at his life and what he was like and how he loved and what motivated him and what his thoughts were and why things were important to him and what he taught. And that's an important thing because there's all kinds of religious stuff around us all over the place. Some of you grew up in it. We see it in our culture and it can be confusing and noising and noisy and the point is Jesus. So taking a hard look at Jesus and saying, I wanna make sure that I'm modeling my life after his life. So as a Christ follower, that's what we need to be giving ourselves to. If you're not a Christ follower, then your expectation of a Christ follower should be that they're pursuing Jesus. And so again, you push off all this other stuff because there's all these misrepresentations of his heart and his mind. But if you've never looked at him, right, it fascinates me sometimes that we'll form like ideas and opinions about Jesus because of other people, but we've never actually taken a good look at him to see what he's like. And so I encourage you to do that as well. And that way, if you decide to become a Christ follower, um, you'll know what you're kind of getting yourself into. So that's what we've been doing here these last few weeks. And we said that when you look at Jesus and his approach to things, it's very interesting because Jesus didn't really come to change the world. He came to save the world. And those are very different things. So changing the world, if you said, I wanna change the world, uh, what that would be kind of grounded in is the idea that I want the world to be something different. And so I'm going to use my power and my resources to try to force the world to be the way that I want it to be. That's the idea of changing the world. Saving the world is very different and that you would look and say, I'm willing to lay my life down to give the world what it needs. 
And that's what Jesus did. Jesus gave his life. Jesus was not murdered because you can't kill God. And so he laid his life down. He offered his life because he wanted to help us know him. So the Bible says he gave his life as a ransom for many. So we owed a debt because of our sin that we can't pay. Jesus paid a debt that he didn't owe. And he purchased the ability for us to have freedom. And he gave his life to save the world. So as his followers, then the Bible says that he's my example, that I would look to Jesus. He's my example. He lived a life of love and he offered his life as a sacrifice for many. So as a Christ follower, when I'm thinking about, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus or be called by God to follow Jesus? Well, it would be rooted in that, that I'm laying my life down. I'm giving myself to the people around me because they need to know the hope and the love of Jesus. I'm not trying to control you. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to form a voting block. I'm trying to help you know that there's a God who loves you and who wants to interact with you and who wants to be with you. And Christ is my example in doing that. So we've been talking about that for the last few weeks. And this is one of those series that probably makes the most sense when it, you kind of listen to it in a linear fashion. So if you wanted to binge on that on our YouTube channel or the app or the website or the podcast, you might really get a lot out of that and, and find that that's a valuable use of, of your time. Um, this weekend, I want to take us time to kind of a, a concluding point, and I want to go back again to kind of this verse that we've used as a foundation for this, and it's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. The Apostle Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And we spent a couple weeks talking a lot about this idea of calling. And this weekend, I want to talk about this idea of living a life worthy. What does it mean to live a life worthy? If we're followers of Jesus, and I want to, I want to live a life worthy of the calling of salvation and the calling of Christ-likeness on my life, what does that worthy life look like? Does it look like more religion, more good deeds, more money in the basket kind of a thing? And I would argue no, that that worthy life looks like a life that is Jesus's life. That I'm gonna look at what Jesus valued, I'm gonna look at what he taught, I'm gonna look at how he lived, and I'm gonna align my life with that. And as my heart reflects his heart, and as my life reflects his life, I'm living in a worthy manner of the calling, see? I, because of the great sacrifice of Christ, I'm kind of taking advantage of that sacrifice and using it for its intended purposes, and that allows my life to be worthy of that calling, right? Now, what does that look like? And that's what I want to talk about this weekend. Like, if, if I'm going to live a worthy life and a life that looks like Jesus, I'm going to act like, talk like, think like, love like, be motivated like Christ and reflect his heart and his mind. How is that going to show up in real time in our world? And what's fascinating is if you start looking at the example of Christ, Jesus would call us as his followers to do all kinds of weird stuff, right? 
Uh, he would call us to tell other people about our faith. That's a really weird thing in our culture today. He would call us to love the poor. Uh, he would call us to take up our cross and follow him. He would tell us that, hey, people hate me, they're gonna hate you. He, he would tell us that we're to live our life with eternal values, not earthly values. Like he's gonna say all of this stuff that is supposed to show up in our life in real time. And it's stuff that if we embrace it, and if we actually live that way, is gonna cause our lives to look and function in a very weird way, in a counter-cultural way. In other words, if I follow Jesus, I'm not gonna fit in with the people around me, and the people are, around me are gonna look at me the way that they looked at Jesus. And we've talked about this a little bit. The people around Jesus told him that he was weird, and they couldn't get their head around what he was doing. And I'm, talk, I'm not just talking like the people out there, the people close into him were like, Jesus, you, why are you doing this? Like you're wasting your life. Why are you doing this? Jesus, you're God. Why don't you just reprogram everybody and make them believe in you? And Jesus would be like, you know, I don't consider equality with God something to be used to my own advantage. I'm not doing that. Jesus, you have political power. Why don't you like run for king? Like dislodge the Romans, you got a corrupt government, and like take over. And my kingdom is not like your kingdom. Jesus, you got popularity. You got more followers than anybody of your time. Like, why don't you just leverage that? And Jesus is like, nah, I'm not doing that. Jesus, you, you can, why don't you, everybody would follow you, when you if you just meet their needs. If you can heal people, why don't you heal everybody? If you can feed 5,000 people, why can't you feed like 5 million people? Why don't, why don't you just do that stuff? And Jesus is like, guys, you don't understand what I'm doing my kingdom works in a different way. And even the people close and around him would be like, that, that's, you're wasting it. You're blowing it. You're blowing your opportunity. And Jesus would say, well, what you call waste, I call investment. What you call waste, I call the kingdom of God. What you call waste, I call a ransom. What you call waste, I call worship. And so by your definition, I'm gonna waste my life to save the world. Well, if I'm his follower, I'm gonna do that too. And that's going to show up in these really, really weird ways. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about this. He says something really fascinating in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, he's talking to Christ's followers. He says, hey, don't deceive yourselves. If anybody thinks that you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. So I just want you to catch this logic. Paul's like, hey guys, if you think you're killing it in this age, if you think you're like fitting in with everybody, you're getting ahead, you're kind of uh, winning at life, if you think that by the standards of the age, you're wise, you should become fools. You should do the opposite of what the standards of the age would say. That's what Jesus did. So Jesus was killing it, right? He's popular, Everybody's following him. They want him to be king. He had all the momentum in late October for the presidential run. Like the whole thing. Like he's killing it. And he was killing it by the standards of this age. And then he became a fool in the eyes of the people of the age. Like why, are, why aren't you doing this? Why are you wasting it? And Paul says, 
if you want to follow Christ, you have to choose to become fools so that you may become wise. The things of God will always look like foolishness. They'll look like stupidity to the people of the age. So if you want to be like Christ, you're going to have to become a fool in their eyes so that you can become wise in his eyes. So if I'm going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to waste my life to save the world, I'm going to look foolish that in the age I live in. We use the word culture here at Grace a lot. In the culture I live in, and by the way, this is every age. This isn't what's going on right now. This isn't just our culture. This is every age across the world all the time. If I'm truly going to follow Christ, then my life is going to be set up in this counter-cultural way. And the people of the age, whatever age that I am in, are going to look at me and say, you're ridiculous. Like, why are you doing that? Why would you live that way? You're wasting your life. Well, what you call a waste, I call wisdom. What, what you call foolish, God calls wise. And I want to give myself to the wisdom of God, which means I'm going to look like a fool in the world or the culture that I live in. Right? Now, that right there is one of the biggest sticking points of following Jesus. Because looking like a fool in somebody's eyes is something that every one of us struggles with. Right? We all struggle with it. Because I don't want to look like a fool. I don't want people to look at me and tell me that I'm dumb for thinking what I think. I don't want people to look at me and tell me that I'm antiquated and that, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to feel old. You're antiquated in what you think. Dad, everybody knows this now, right? I don't like that feeling. You don't like that feeling. I don't want to be on the outside. Well, all of us think this, but you're dumb for thinking that, so you're not invited to our junior high party. Like, nobody likes that. We are all conditioned to want to belong. We're conditioned to want to fit in, and we are conditioned to avoid pain. I don't want that pain. I don't want that emotional pressure in me. And that's a part of our wiring and our humanity. But the Apostle Paul just said, Jesus' example is that you're going to look like a fool. And so following him puts me in that position, like, permanently. And it's one of the most difficult parts of being a Christ follower. I am going to, to follow Jesus, I'm going to have to become foolish in order to engage the wisdom of God and follow it. Now, this is what I've observed, right? Just in my, my little life here. That's what I've observed. I've observed that every Christ follower struggles with that. And when it comes to the call of Jesus and this call to foolishness, what almost everybody who receives that call or is thinking about that call struggles with is this idea. Is there some way to like negate that? Can I look like maybe not like a total fool, just a little bit of a fool? Is there some way that I can like dodge that bullet 
and kind of make everything okay. And what I've observed is this, is that in our attempts to dodge that bullet, which cannot be dodged, by the way, we tend to go one direction or the other. There tends to be one extreme or another extreme that people tend to run into. The one extreme, I just titled it this, it's the extreme of a religious outsider. And so a religious outsider has this mindset that it's us versus them. And this person at the extreme will go way, way out here and they will say, the culture over there they call me a fool, they persecute me, they make me feel like an outsider, they make me feel dumb. I don't like that, because nobody does. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna come over here and I'm gonna make my own subculture. So I'm gonna have my own music and our own traditions and our own art and our own movies, and our own books, and our own TV shows, and our own social life. Because when I'm with these people, who all kind of agree with me about everything, I feel safe, I feel included, and I don't look like a fool. And those people over there, see, they're the fools. We're the wise ones. They're the fools. And they are dumb, and they are ignorant, and they are lost, and they are creeps, and they cheer for Michigan. And like everything you possibly do wrong, they do that. But we don't do that. And this extreme and versions of it is an effort to escape this point of foolishness, right? Now, the other extreme, I just made up a title. I titled it this is that of a cultural insider. And the mindset of a cultural insider is we become them. So I'm in this place of a fool. I don't like feeling like a fool. I don't like the pain and the rejection that comes with it. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna try to bring Jesus all the way into whatever the culture deems as acceptable. So my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. But I need to like change the Bible. I need to alter the clarity of scripture. I need to redefine relationships. I need to redefine biology. I need to redefine like the easy peasy, clear as day aspects of scripture. They can't mean what they mean and fit in over here. So I have to change it. But if I can change it, I don't have to deal with the pain and the rejection of being a fool. They will see me as wise, and they will see me as wise. They will accept me and include me, and they will accept me and include me, and I don't have to be this outsider who is rejected by the people around me. And somehow, I beat 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I don't have to become a fool in order to be wise, see? And the temptation is to try to work our way around this whole idea so that I don't have to be sucked into it. And this is what's fascinating. When you go back and look at the early church, the very first century Christians, 
they just assumed this position because they were dialed into Jesus. Jesus had not been diluted into the religious outsider's mindset, and he had not been diluted into the cultural insider's mindset. He was kind of in his purest form, so to say. He had just died, he just rose again, he just went back up into heaven, and now the church has formed. And when they looked at Jesus, what they saw was a guy who was willing to be a fool. He did not fit in with the religious right, the outsiders, and he did not fit in with the cultural insiders. He didn't fit either one of those places. He was his own path, his own way, and they were following him. In fact, they called them people of the way. Being called a Christian was not a title that you took on yourself. It was an accusation from the religious outsider or the cultural insider. Other people labeled you a Christian, you didn't label yourself that. So they understood that this was the calling of Christ. In fact, there was, a, I was reading something by Timothy Keller, and by the way, you should read everything by Timothy Keller, I think he's awesome. But he reminded me of this guy, he's a pagan philosopher, his name was Swantaneous. And Swantaneous said this about Christians, he said, Christians are another genos. Genos is the, is the Greek root for species. Christians are another species. They don't show up here. They don't show up there. They're like this whole other thing. And they're this other species that the world had never seen before. And now they're with us, and we can't quite figure out what to do with them. See? In the early church, remember the early church was burst into the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was much like our culture today. It was a very godless empire. It was a very government-heavy empire. It was a very wealth-prosperity empire, very entertainment-based empire, and very uh, amoral or unmoral empire. It was very much like our culture today. And the church is birthed into that culture, and they're followers of Jesus. And nobody knew what to do with them. So like the early church, for instance, they would not go to the Colosseum and watch the gladiators. That was the big thing in the Roman Empire. And that there's a main one in Rome, but those Colosseums are all over the Roman Empire. Well, they wouldn't do it because they didn't believe in a blood sport. So they believed in the dignity of human beings and the idea that you would watch one human being slaughter another human being for entertainment was offensive to them when they watched their savior be, uh, be uh, crucified as a sacrifice for them. It made no sense to them. So they wouldn't go. So the Romans, the cultural insiders, considered them very, very antisocial. They're like, what's wrong with those people? Everybody's talking about what happened with the gladiators. These people don't even know who they are. They, they would not serve in the military. So they would not join the Roman army and be a part of Caesar's war. The early church was very pacifistic. They wouldn't do it. Because the idea that you would take somebody else's life so that the Roman Empire could own their farm, it was totally foreign to them. So they wouldn't do it. They went under a lot of persecution because of that. They didn't believe in uh, an abortion or infanticide. They were anti-abortion, anti-fanticide. The Romans practiced this thing that's called exposure. So a child was born 
and within the first three to four days of a child being born, if you didn't want that child, you could leave that child outside in the elements and it wasn't illegal. And if the child died, then you just didn't have another mouth to feed. If the child lived, then you were legally obligated to raise it. And so the Romans would do that all the time, especially with girls, because nobody wanted a girl. And they would leave the children out to be exposed. The Christians would go scoop those kids up and raise them and adopt them. Well, who would do that? This is a throwaway kid. What kind of weird species of people would do something like this. The Christians were very weird on both the, this side, the religi religious outsider and the cultural insider in the, in the fact that they empowered women. So in the ancient world, at this time in Rome, women were mostly property. And you would sell a woman or create a contract with a woman. Christians came in and they said, we don't view women that way. They would also mix the races, which was very taboo, both here and there. Remember over here, the Jewish elite in the story, the Good Samaritan and the woman at the well? Those stories all have racial components to them. That's why the Jewish people didn't want to interact with the Samaritans. And so these Christians would look and say, well, we value women and we don't really care what your race is because in Christ, there is no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female. No, no, there, there's nothing like that because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. What do we care? This is brand new concept that neither one of these places had ever heard of before or practiced before. They, they taught that you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. That was completely foreign over here. Because over here, you had kind of sex with whoever you could. So this idea that you would keep the marriage bed pure and be devoted to one wife and practice monogamy, completely foreign concept to the Roman culture. They had a passion for the poor. These guys enslaved the poor. The cultural insiders enslaved the poor. These guys, the religious outsiders, they thought you were poor because God cursed your family so they wouldn't have anything to do with you. These guys loved and served and embraced the poor. This completely foreign concept, this totally different way. These guys taught forgiveness and non-retaliation. They, they would say, you should not repay evil for evil. Well, this was a strongman culture, these religious insiders. This is the Roman Empire. These guys over here, they taught that that's the only way you could get justice. It was eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's what you did. So to go here and say, forgive as you've been forgiven and do not repay evil for evil, nobody had heard of this kind of teaching before. And then these guys also taught submission to authority. Peter said, you should submit to the emperor. Well, these guys are having rebellions against the emperor. So suddenly there's this other group of people who were their own thing. And they, did, they couldn't fit over here and be followers of Christ. And they couldn't fit over here and be followers of Christ. And what they said was, our example is Christ. See? And both sides, these guys looked and said, Jesus is who we follow. We will live the life of love that he lived. We will sacrifice ourselves, offer ourselves as a sacrifice that he offered himself. We follow Christ. The, the, the religious outsiders, they hated this. 
because they lost all power and authority over these people. These people didn't really care what they thought. And these cultural insiders, the Roman Empire, they hated this because they lost all power and authority over these people. They didn't really care what these guys thought. They only cared who Christ was and what he had called them to. This is Palm Sunday weekend. Palm Sunday is when we, we call it Palm Sunday because we remember what we call the triumphal entry when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he's riding in on a colt and, and people are waving palm branches. And they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then they would lay those palm branches down on the ground like a red carpet for him. And when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, this group of people and this group of people are super jacked that he's coming to Jerusalem. But they are excited he's coming because of what they want, not because of who he is. These people think he's the returning king of Israel. He's going to depose the Romans, take over David's throne. These people are religious nationalists, and they want control of the government. And here's our boy. He's going to give us what we want. These people want him to do more miracles. They're like, hey, if you feed 5,000, feed 5 million. Like, feed us. Give us money. Heal us. Do for us what we want. They wanted Jesus to do what they wanted him to do. They had no idea who he was. And they're both cheering for Christ. And when they found out that Christ came not to join them and not to join them, but to create a new genos, another species, a different person, a different nation, a holy nation, a people that belong to him. When they found out that he had his own agenda, within a week, the chance went from from welcoming him to crucify him. And these guys wanted him on the cross. And these guys wanted him on the cross. And on the cross, neither one of them were shouting Hosanna. And the early church looked and said, we understand this. We, had, we just watched that happen. You're, you're within a month or two. And a bunch of those people had seen it and the day of Pentecost happened and the disciples and the apostles were there. And when Paul said, you got to become a fool they understood what that foolishness meant. That we're going to have to live a life that's completely counter to all of the age around us. And that life is going to look like total 
foolishness to them because this group said the cross was a waste and this group said the cross was a waste. And Jesus said, what you call a waste, I call salvation. What you call a waste, I call atonement. What you call a waste, I call the laying down of my life for the forgiveness of sin. It's interesting. Jesus, in a prayer that he prays for us in John 17, he's praying for his disciples for us today. He's talking to his father, he says this. He's talking about, if you're a Christ follower, he's talking about you. He says, Father, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Why? For they're not of the world. They, they don't belong to the world. Father, I gave them their word. The religious outsider hates their guts. Why? Because they love these people that these people can't stand. Like me. I was a friend to sinners, to prostitutes, to tax collectors, and the, re the religious outsider hated my guts for it. Hey. Father, the, I gave him your word, and, and these people, they're going to hate my guts. Why? Because they can't fit in here. They're not of the world. The, both of these, this is the age. They don't, they don't fit in here. We can't agree. How in the world can we agree? We can compromise. Well, I can't. On, I can't. Christ didn't. So, so Father, they're going to be hated because they're fools in the eyes of the world. They're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Isn't that fascinating? I'm actually not trying to get them out of it, God. My prayer is not to take them out of the world, ready? But that you protect them from the evil one. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus prays. He's like, I'm not asking you to remove them from the world, Father. And he also, he doesn't say, and my prayer is that you protect them from the world. God, it's going to be hard. People are jerks. God, I pray that you, you protect them from all the noise because it's going to be, no. I pray that you protect them from the evil one. What would the evil one be doing? Well, the evil one would be tempting the people of God to do what? To become religious outsiders or to become cultural insiders. You, just come over here. These people's souls don't matter. Just come over here. Just be happy. Raise the kids. Make sure that nothing ever bad happens to them. Just come over here. This, you, know how, you know how old this book is? Just come over here. It can't possibly mean what it says. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. The word sanctify means to set apart or to cleanse, right? So set them apart with what? With your truth. Your word is truth. Father, 
the way of the cross is here. So as they learn this, as they, as they get my heart and my mind and your heart and your mind, set them apart with the truth of who you are. Help to empower them to be fools. Give them confidence to be fools. Help them to understand that nothing strange is happening to them. It's the way it happened to me. Everybody thought I was a fool. At the peak of my popularity, oh, a week later, I'm crucified. It's just the way it is. So sanctify them by the word. Your word is truth. As you sent me then, Father, into the world, I have sent them into the world. Not to hide, not to resent, not to join, to be a beacon on a hill, to be salt, to be light, to be an ambassador. As if I myself am making the appeal. I'm sending them to do that. Guys, listen, our world is desperate for an alternative. If you want to find a religious outsider voice, there are millions. If you want to find a cultural insider voice, there are millions. If you want to find an authentic follower of Christ who will waste their life to save yours. Our world is desperate for the people of God who have been sent, who are being sanctified who by our very nature can't fit in. Right? Who will live a life of love. Not, not a life of isolation. Not a life of compromise. A life of love and who will offer themselves in the manner that our Savior did. And that person is incredibly difficult to find. That group of people is incredibly difficult to find. But that's the way of our Savior. He couldn't fit in. And everybody, everybody around him told him you're wasting your life. The cultural insider, Pilate, tried to give him a way out. Jesus wouldn't take it. He wouldn't answer his own charges. 
Peter was ready to pull the weapon and fight. Jesus rebuked him for it. Wasn't here for that. His kingdom is different. His way is different. And his people are called to it. Our Lord wasted his life to bring salvation to our world. A world that looks remarkably like ours because the world always looks the same. But light in darkness, see? Light in darkness never goes unnoticed. And God has called us. Jesus, would you help us with this? It's a big deal, guys, hard. None of us like it or want it, Lord. But Lord, I, I can't see in your word a way that it's avoidable. In fact, I, I don't even see how we can follow you and do that privately. <laughs> we have to love and serve and give to other people. And so it's... But Lord, would you press into us, God, not, not just obedience or compliance, but would you help us to see the depth of your love? That you loved us so greatly and grandly that we're compelled to follow you. And Lord, in the age that you have called us to be your people, the opportunity to be an alternative is enormous. So would you give us courage, give us passion, and give us the faith, God, to be fools.